I'm here today with Celeste Coravos, a principal in decarbonization and energy transition at Exodus, focusing on Japanese investors in Australia and their partnerships with Australian companies to achieve net zero. Celeste's choice to study Japanese in high school led her to gain experience working as a foreign lawyer in Japan and also to lead one of Australia's oldest business organizations in the Australia Japan space. To me, Celeste's clout is her ability to leverage her Japanese language capability and understanding of the Japanese business culture to help build a stronger Australia Japan community in Victoria. And to build partnerships that help connect Australian and Japanese expertise and capital. We talked about Celeste's experiences working in Japan, how she sees Australia's expertise in helping Japan in their goal towards decarbonisation, how learning Japanese has shaped her Australia identity, and the Japanese contribution to female empowerment. Welcome to Clout Asia. Where we ask Australians to take us on their journey to Asia capability by choosing a food, song, show, and person that captures the essence of their experience to help us understand what Bain and Ozzy with Clout is all about. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Celeste Koravos. Good evening, and welcome to Clout Asia, Celeste. Thank you for having me, Lucy. It's great to have you on. We connected through the Australia Asia space in Melbourne a few months ago. You are the CEO of the Australia Japan Business Council of Victoria, a not for profit, volunteer run and driven organization. I have a similar role with the Australia China Young Professionals Initiative. I think we were sharing some notes. In terms of how we run those communities, which is really great. And I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into that. But before we go into that, I'd love to hear your journey into studying Japanese, going to Japan to work, and your Asia journey. Thank you, Lucy. The first Japanese I learned was at karate when I was a child. So that's when I first came across the language. And then getting into high school, I had the typical choice at the time in Australia of Japanese, French, German, or Indonesian. And my dad said, How about you try Japanese? It might be useful for business one day. So I went with Japanese. And thankfully, I started nice and early because, as you might know from your various script languages, It takes three times the amount of time to get to the same fluency in a script language as it does in a European language, for example. So while I studied Japanese for 10 years, it sounds like a long time, but it's not that long relative to script language studies. So I studied Japanese at high school and university. I did a diploma of languages in Japanese and I didn't really expect to do it professionally, just continued the language into university. When I started working, I worked as a lawyer upon graduating my law engineering degree. My firm offered a graduate rotation in Asia. 
And at that time, it was the first firm in Australia to merge with an international firm. And there was a grad rotation in Asia, and it was proposed to be in Hong Kong or Singapore. But a couple of us who were Asian language speakers asked for different locations, and I proposed Tokyo. And thankfully, the Tokyo office was excited to have an Australian lawyer in. So I went over there and worked for a short period and really enjoyed working with Japanese colleagues and also expats who were not only rotating through that office, but very much long-termers in Japan. After coming back home to Australia, like most expats, I looked for a community and that's how I joined the Australia-Japan Business Council of Victoria and really had a thread throughout my career of Japan. So acting for Japanese clients and then eventually moving to a Japanese company. So I worked in-house at a Japanese trading company and then ultimately had some roles at multinationals with an APAC regional focus, including Japan. And now in my current role, I'm based in Melbourne and working closely with Perth and Tokyo offices to support Japanese clients in Japan and in Australia on the decarbonisation journey. It sounds like Japan's been such an active part of both your personal and professional journey. Looking back, because of perhaps your interest in the language, your ability to speak the language that has given you certain opportunities and certain points to allow you to stay so connected with the Japanese community and the Japanese business partnership? When I summarise it, it sounds like there's a really strong Japan thread, but there were periods where there wasn't that element and I was searching for it. One thing we try and focus on through the Australia-Japan Business Council of Victoria is really giving people with Asia capability the opportunity to pursue careers that are Asia-facing. So we have things like mentoring program, internship program, careers nights, focusing on university students and young professionals and really trying to address that gap of, I'm interested in Asia, I have perhaps some language skills or other relevant Asia capability, I want to use it, but what do I do? It seems that a lot of roles aren't really available until I'm in my mid-30s. A lot of Japanese companies, in my case, don't have graduate programs in Australia, for example. That's one thing we're quite focused on at the Australia-Japan Business Council of Victoria, finding Asia-capable people and keeping them involved and helping them to have Asia-related careers because we all know that Australia desperately needs Asia capability and it's here, there's plenty of it, At the moment, I'm thankfully working in a role that has some interface with my Australia-Japan not-for-profit role. However, it can be tricky to find ways to use your Asia capability, which it really shouldn't be because Australia is basically part of Asia and it's our future. It's an interesting point you raise because I know a a few Chinese-Australians who bilingual in Chinese and English, but also chose to study Japanese. Obviously, Mandarin is a much more popular and dominant language in Australia. I think there's 10 times as many Mandarin speakers in Australia than Japanese speakers. Often that aspect of the language or that capability actually gets put second or forgotten, whereas really 
you would think that it would be compounded because they not only have English, but they have two Asian languages, but yet they never get the opportunity to build out the Japanese capability that they have. It's something we all need to work on and just have an awareness of how it is useful and how it can position us globally, not just in Asia, but when working with Asian partners, for example, in third markets. I want to jump to your first nomination, which is Tokyo Banana, talking (laughs) about the start of your Japan journey. Can you tell us what it is? Is it a fruit? (laughs) It sounds like it should be a fruit. It's actually a cake. It's a tiny banana-shaped cake with cream inside. And I'm not really a cream cake person, but I think anyone that eats Tokyo banana is converted. And there's all sorts of variations on it. It's just one of those delicious little things that you can only find in Japan and is an example of, I think, the, the Japanese obsession with getting things right and perfecting them and mastering things and making them as good as they can possibly be. Do you remember the first time you ate it? realized you were in love with it (laughs) I don't remember but I remember it's always a delicate balance in terms of how much I take home with me because they expire quite quickly Mm -hmm. because they've got cream inside do I just go for it and eat only Tokyo banana for two entire days after I get home or do I take a more sensible approach so anyway I recommend that if you're ever at a Japanese airport or train station and they're not available in Australia. No, I've tried very hard to find them online. It's quite a Japan exclusive thing. Okay. For anyone who might be thinking of new business ideas, there's one very loyal customer right here. Before we get into the Australia-Japan Business Council stuff that you're doing and also your role, I want to ask you one thing about the comparison when you travel to Japan as an exchange student and on holidays, that first mm. initial experience, and then later when you were at your law firm and working mm. in a professional context, I imagine it would have been quite different. I'd love for you to share some of those reflections or memories of some of the real key differences that you remember. That's such a good question, and I've never really thought about it. I would say that. When you go as a child or as a teenager, you're starry-eyed and you're just looking at everything in wonder, whereas as you go over in a professional capacity, things are equally awe-inspiring and exciting, but you also have to quickly get up to speed with things, navigate things, move between meetings, figure out how to read a Japanese address, which is not intuitive, having to try and work with the taxi driver to figure out where you're going. As a professional, probably a little bit more navigating things quickly. I think particularly if you're on a Japanese-style business trip, Japanese-style business trips can be quite extreme in that they're back-to-back, everything's hyper-organised, there's not much breathing room in between meetings Some extra things with Japan and business, it's always really nice to bring Australian things over. There's a cultural expectation in Japan of when colleagues are travelling back and forth between Japan and other countries, they bring a gift, which is a nice gesture. 
but the law firm when you were a graduate obviously had worked in Australia and then did a rotation and mm. a small stint mm. in Japan. Mm. Was there any key differences between the working styles of the two offices? Mm. They were probably less acute because it was an international law firm. If I had been at a Japanese domestic law firm, I would have felt it more acutely. And also as a foreigner, probably you're not subject to the same expectations as a national. But of course, we we do try to understand what those expectations are and meet them where possible to show respect. Hierarchy is massive in Japan. How everyone sits within a meeting room is very organised in terms of the best seat in a house goes to the most senior person, the seat away from the door, the seat with a good view, the seat facing the artwork. You have to be really careful about where you sit and that seating etiquette extends to restaurants and even taxis and trains. Japan is very consensus focused, so decisions are made at a group level from bottom up and pushed up the chain. It's really collaborative and you have expect to be working as part of a group I think there's positives and negatives to that positives are everyone sort of weighs in but negatives are people might not speak up when they disagree with something because you do have to get consensus for things to move so you're probably not getting that negative feedback along the way Uh, and Japanese people very much avoid giving negative feedback or disagreeing as a general principle and potentially it's something that also limits innovation when everyone's having to agree 100% unanimously on things. But the positives are that when a decision is made, everyone's very much on board with it and understands it and is ready to execute and executes it very well. Hierarchy, decision-making, and there's plenty of others. We actually do business culture training at the Australia-Japan Business Council Mm. on these kinds of topics because they're so fundamental. And Australia and Japan, interestingly, are really on the opposite ends of the scale for pretty much every metric you can think of for how relationships are formed, for how decisions are made, for giving feedback, for disagreement, even a sense of time and others. It is different and that's fun. In the Australia-Japan Business Council, Who would you say are the majority of your members? You mentioned you do a lot of the business and cultural education. Does Mm. that mean that a lot of your members are mostly Australians looking or wanting to engage with Japan or do you also have the Japanese diaspora in your community? We also have Japanese diaspora and Japanese expats who are typically in Australia for three to five years in roles that they then rotate out of. So I'd say our membership is 50% Japanese, 50% non-Japanese, and it's corporates, it's government, and it's universities. We're quite fortunate that one of our patrons is the Consul General of Japan in Melbourne, and his representative sits on our board. We try and represent all levels of both sides' governments. I was lucky enough to meet the new Japanese ambassador in Canberra when you and I last met Lucy to talk about the Australia-Japan relationship, which he was really positive about. Amazing. And you have your Australia-Japan Golden Gala coming up in September, and that relates to your music nomination. Can you tell us a bit more? This is a really fun event. It's the largest annual Australia-Japan networking event in the country. 
We're really excited that the new Japanese ambassador is coming to Melbourne for for his first trip and he'll be giving the keynote address. We've doubled the size this year due to the demand from last year and we'll have about 400 guests. The performance is going to be exciting. First up, we have a comedian. He won the award for the best comedian at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And then the music bit I'm really excited about, we have Noriko Tadano, who's a famous shamisen player, like a little Japanese guitar, playing alongside an Australian Indigenous man called Alan Edwards Sr., who will be on the didgeridoo. I'm not sure, but it might be the first time they're doing it in Melbourne. And it's just beautiful and such a nice example of what can be created across cultures. that when we met as well, you've always had probably a bit of a personal interest in encouraging the business and the investment between Australia and Japan. And you do part of that through the Australia-Japan Business Council. And now in your role at Exodus, that's been brought into your full-time focus. I'd love to understand the Japanese and Australian partnerships in the decarbonisation space as well? Japan has a three-part focus to energy. So it's thinking first about security and price and then it's thinking about net zero. And there's an ageing, declining population. There's stability issues with the yen and the Japanese are trying to get money out of Japan. Japan is the world's fifth largest greenhouse gas emitter and it really needs to go offshore in order to decarbonize. It's looking at value chains of hydrogen and ammonia and CCS between Australia and Japan. And this has been accelerated even more so with the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And Australia's really become the number two partner for Japan after the US, um, up from about number six. Australia and Japan are complementary in that we're resource rich and capital poor and they're the opposite. So the kinds of partnerships we're seeing in Australia are traditional ones of coal and LNG and, and those investments are continuing and there's new investments coming online, particularly in the LNG space. Looking at green and blue hydrogen production, ammonia, MCH, using ammonia and hydrogen for co-firing in Japan and looking at hydrogen for mobility. Critical minerals is a really important one. Wind, onshore and offshore. Solar continues to be important. Battery to support the variability in wind and solar and carbon credits, CCS and low emissions metals and also e-fuels. There's so many areas where Australia and Japan are partnering I think the question is just how quickly can we do it and narrow down what we should be doing and commercialise at a large scale on the ones that are going to be successful. So is it a lot of Japanese investment into Australia or the other way around? 
yes, a lot of Japanese investment into Australia. We've got the large oil and gas companies here. We have Japanese trading companies, Japanese automotive companies like Toyota. We have Japanese banks. MUFG, world's largest bank outside of China, has its Australian headquarters in Sydney. We've seen JBIC, the Japan Bank for International Cooperation, recently return to Sydney. And there's other Japanese government authorities like Jetro and Jokmek, who are all involved in providing funding to renewables projects. A lot of money coming into Australia to develop these projects. And is there similar investment from Australia to Japan? No, no, there's not. There will eventually be more export of hydrogen and ammonia, for example, into Japan. But not the same level of projects in Japan due to the particular restrictions with Japan's natural resources. And I'm curious, hydrogen isn't unique to Australia. I think a lot of Australians mm. care a lot about hydrogen. There's also hydrogen availability in the Middle yeah. East. And in the current market, I think everyone is very eager for capital. So yeah. where there is capital from anywhere... <laughs> A lot of competition. How is Australia positioned relative to our other competitors in this space? I think some of the differentiators are trust. So I think the Australia-Japan LNG relationship has really formed a blueprint that's transferable into renewables and able to transfer those skills into new forms of energy partnerships. Another one is just distance. So proximity to Japan really helps. But one thing I would say that has been not in Australia's favour is the new US Inflation Reduction Act, which has meant that investment into renewables, etc. in the US is becoming a lot more economically appealing than in Australia. One thing that is an ongoing topic of discussion is the perception of political and policy uncertainty in Australia. And that's part of our job as Australians to try and bridge that gap and create some investor confidence and help facilitate those discussions and address those concerns. I think that trust element is so important and really forms the foundation. On our show, we often, with some of my other guests, we do talk about the Asian Australian identity a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Australian identity, you have the Japan connection, but also a very unique kind of migrant story. And for your person of clout, you have nominated family and your broader family. I'd love for you to share a little bit more about how that's formed your own identity and the Australian identity. I was born in Australia. My grandparents are originally from Greece. Greek was my first language, didn't speak English until kindergarten age. I probably have an understanding of what it's like to have a different background. I guess everyone's different to each other, which makes everyone the same, really. Having a second culture, perhaps. Having that migrant background, I think, makes me reflect on what is the Australian identity. And we heard from Assistant Foreign Minister Tim Watts a couple of times during the AsiaLink Leaders Program that I'm doing this year that I know you present to, Lucy what is the Australian identity and we really need to get clear on that in order to be competitive globally. It's the First Nations identity, it's the migrant identity 
and how do we define ourselves so that we can go out to the world and play at the global scale. Mm, I agree. And it's really thinking about the individual. It's knowing who you are and what you stand for and um, yes. to be able to grow. Interesting, I think, for Japan, and this was another guest, James Scullin, we were talking about his music nomination, which is Japanese surf rock. I feel like Japanese culture, even though there's a lot of different elements that's drawn from, say, American culture or other societies throughout history, the Japanese identity, I think, is very strong. It's a very strong national identity. And that's kind of very reflected in what they export, what they produce. And Australia has a very different background and makeup of our society and the kind of work that we're doing to slowly build a coherent understanding of who we are and how we all fit in the fabric of what it means to be Australian will definitely make us stronger. And I think that explains one of one of the key cultural differences between Australia and Japan, which is how we communicate. And Japan being an island nation influenced by Confucianism, some level of homogeneity in the population, shared understanding. People can understand each other and read each other a lot more than we can. They don't say things directly. They pick up on other cues. They pick up on what's not said or a message that's sent a different way. That's called high context, whereas we're very low context in Australia. We speak in large part more directly. We mean what we say. We might repeat ourselves for clarity or ask questions for clarity in order to be able to communicate with each other. And the last thing to round out everything, you've picked a very interesting book, which I'd love to read. I'm going to read out the one-line synopsis, which is the Japanese phenomenon that shows you how to change your life and achieve real happiness. What's the book? Tell us about it. It's one of those books where I got my highlighter out to highlight the important sections and I ended up highlighting 95% of it. It's a really cool book. It's written by two Japanese people and it's about an idea from Adlerian psychology and it's presented in a Greek philosopher pupil style dialogue, The Courage to be Disliked. It's a bestseller in Japan where you're definitely not supposed to be disliked. You're supposed to be liked and largely to conform. I think the core message is if you're not disliked, it means you're not doing anything. We all have to do things and that's going to mean that someone doesn't like what we're doing. But we shouldn't be worried about being disliked because it means we're probably actually doing something worthwhile because anything worthwhile is going to attract opinions particularly as women, that's a message that we need to hear because it's contrary to a lot of what we're taught growing up and in the workplace and in society. So I do have to read it again. Maybe I'll read it with you, Lucy. Do you Absolutely. have a book? Like, like I feel <laughs> like I need to have one because I've started to accumulate lists of books that we should all be reading. We'll definitely include it in our show notes. I think it's so relevant to empowering more female leaders, which I see you to be one, Celeste, and also people of Asian backgrounds. I think that courage to take 
that step forward and to speak up often or to be more authentic and retraining your mind to accept yourself and accept others around you. Really worthwhile advice for anybody at any stage in their career. It's been really wonderful to speak with you this evening. It's great to have you on the show. You too, Lucy. And I'm sure the next time you're in Melbourne, you'll take me to some place I've never been before like you did last time. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So great to see you. Likewise. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Clout Asia on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Clout Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.